Now, if you have a Bible with you and want to turn to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our teaching series called Calvary's Core, where we're looking at the core values of Calvary Community Church. Really what we've established going into 2030 are six values, what I've called six sentences, that shape the way we live. And as we begin to internalize these six sentences, that it's all about Jesus, God's people delight in God's word, that life change happens in relationship, that found people find people and save people serve people and grateful people are giving people. As we think about these six sentences, we internalize it and it begins to shape the way we live. And this morning, we will look at this, this sentence, this phrase, that life change happens in relationship. Now, when you hear life change happens in relationship, all sorts of thoughts may pop into your mind, and the most basic of which might just be that we're suggesting as a church that it is good and right and healthy that you have Christian friendships. And I want to affirm that, because it's true. But I also want to press this morning that it's far deeper than the importance of Christian friendships in your life. I have amazing Christian friends. I'm grateful for the men and women I call friends and colleagues and people I get to do church and life with. But I want you to know that it's far more than that. In fact, I'm going to point us to the first words here where it says that life change is what happens in relationship. So I want us to understand this morning that it's not simply that we're a people who just want to have Christian friendships and good community around us. I want us to understand clearly and powerfully from the story we're going to read this morning that God shows his supernatural healing and power and presence in the context of the friends and the relationships we build around us. I love the way our elders have articulated it in our 2030 vision. This is out of our 2030 vision magazine. They've said these words that we see a church filled with disciples who are relentless in their pursuit of God-honoring, life-changing relationships with other believers. We recognize that following Jesus is not meant to be done alone, and that only through relationship with others can we live out the commands of Jesus and experience the life to the full that Jesus gives us. In a world that is growing more disconnected than ever before, we will be a different kind of people who willingly choose to do life with one another, depend on one another, pray for one another, provide for one another, and encourage one another each day. In a world that is filled with people who are disconnecting, who are going online, who are pulling away from each other, who are isolating themselves in their homes, we're going to choose as a church to be a different kind of people. Why? Because life change happens in relationship. And I want you to see that in the story we're going to look at this morning. Again, Luke chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, mobile device, or you'll see it on the screen, it says these words. It says, one day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So there's this immediate contrast that happens here. It says there's kind of two things going on. You've got Jesus who has the power of the Lord with him to heal the sick. Jesus is going around doing miracles, healing sick people in front of him. And then on the other side, it says here that you have Pharisees and teachings of the law. And you notice Luke's little note. They're not standing there. They're sitting there. They're observing. They're watching these Pharisees. Now I grew up in church, and I don't know if you grew up in church, but if you did, you probably heard about the Pharisees a lot. And the simple way to understand it as a kid, if you read the stories of Jesus, was that Jesus was the good guy and the Pharisees were the bad guys. And that's how a lot of people see it. Jesus, good guy, Pharisees, bad guys, and that's kind of how you understand it. But here's what I need you to know. The Pharisees were not bad guys. In first century Judaism, in fact, there were really four approaches to Judaism in the first century. Four ways that the Jewish people were trying to figure out what it meant to live under the Roman Empire. 
The Roman Empire was dominating them. They were occupied. They had them under their boot. And they were trying to figure out how do we live as faithful people of God under the Roman Empire. The first option was the Sadducees. The Sadducees built their whole religious life around the temple and the operations of the temple. And that's what the Sadducees had built their life around. The Pharisees, on the other hand, had built their life around the teachings of the Torah, the teaching of the the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and how to apply those laws to every situation in their life. So you have the Sadducees, you have the Pharisees. The third group was the Zealots. The Zealots thought, Rome's in charge. God told us we'd be in charge. Let's pick up arms and go kill them. That was their approach. The Zealots were a revolutionary political movement looking at military force against the Romans. And the final group was the Essenes. The Essenes were a group that said, hey, we have no chance against the Romans. Let's seclude ourselves in the desert. Let's go hide away in caves. Let's go hide away in communities so that we can be away from this corrupting influence of the world. Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, Essenes. Four groups, four different approaches to how to live faithfully in the midst of first century world, the first century Judaism. The Pharisees are one of those groups. And the problem with the Pharisees was not that they believed the law of God. The law of God was true and it was good and Jesus upheld and affirmed that same law. Jesus said that the law wasn't something we ignore or something awful or something to be done away with, but rather something to be cherished. But the problem with the Pharisees was this. It's not that they were evil. It's not that they were wicked. It's that they were distracted. It's that the Pharisees became so attached to the law of God and how that played out in their religious lives that they actually missed the point that the law was meant to give us or bring us to the lawgiver. The law was meant to bring us to the creator. See, the point is that in the Pharisees' lives, the same thing happened that can happen in so many of our lives. The Pharisees got obsessed with their religion and missed the point that their religion was meant to bring them before God. And in this story, it couldn't be clear that the the, the distinction that's made Jesus healing people and the Pharisees sitting on the sidelines watching. And I want to say this this morning this way, that religion has no ability to heal. See, this is what the Pharisees are showing us. Just religious activity, showing up at church and saying your prayers and reading your Bible and doing all the religious activity has actually no ability to heal in and of itself. See, the problem for the Pharisees wasn't that they were wicked, it's that they were distracted. It's that they were into all this religious activity thinking that was the point, when the point was always that it would lead them toward the Lord. See, I want you to know this morning that religion has no ability to heal the deepest wounds in your life, the deepest problems in your life, the things you need breakthrough in, the things you need God to free you from or heal you from. Religion has no ability to heal. But can I proclaim over you this morning this simple truth that Jesus has the ability to heal, that Jesus is the one who sets us free, that Jesus is the one who has the power to create breakthrough and to create that freedom you're looking for in your life. See, this morning, when we talk about life change happening in relationship. I'm not interested in us thinking about more religious activity for us to do. I'm not interested in just laying upon you more religious things to add to your calendar and your to-do list. What I'm interested in is leading you into a relationship with others so that you can encounter the powerful healing work of Jesus in your life. The question I want us to wrestle with all morning is this, how do we experience the healing power of Jesus over the things in our life? the things that we're struggling with, the things that tie us down, the things that we're addicted to, the things that bind us, the things that keep us from living the life that Jesus wants for us. I think the answer to this question might surprise you. Verse 18 says this, 
It says some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him to the house to lay him before Jesus. Now, if you grew up in church again like I did, uh, you'll remember the flannel graph of this one. There's the guy and he's laying, laying on the mat and he's got four friends and they're carrying each corner of the mat and they're trying to take the paralyzed man to Jesus. And he's going to be kind of the central figure here, this individual who is paralyzed. He has no ability to move on his own. And this is going to be a healing story of how Jesus heals this paralyzed man and brings his body the ability to move once again. And yet at the same time, this paralyzed man is actually an incredible picture for us this morning. He's an incredible picture for all of us to understand how God has designed and how he's wired us and what it means for us to live as his people in this world. You see, it says here even in the text that there's the men carrying the paralyzed man on the mat. He has no ability to move on his own, no ability to seek after Jesus on his own, no ability to do this thing on his own. He has to rely on the faith and on the love of his friends. And I believe the same thing is true for us. It's one of the most frustrating things about being a human being. One of the things people like me and maybe some of you don't want to admit in life. And that's the simple fact that we need others in order to live the life God has called us to lead. Let me put it to you this way this morning, that life change begins when you let go of the idea that you can heal on your own. Life change in your life begins when you let go of this toxic and terrible idea that you've got this on your own and you don't need anyone, you're strong enough, you're rich enough, you're resourced enough, you're clever enough, you're spiritual enough to do this thing on your own. You have to let go of that idea in order for God to bring healing into your life. It's like this, I've got a a one-year-old Hope um, is my daughter. And uh, Hope is kind of in this stage. Anyone who has a one-year-old or a grandchild who's a one-year-old knows they love to hold on to things at this age, don't they? And it's never like an interesting thing that they would love, like a teddy bear. It's always like a cup or a baseball bat. Like it's always something like that. And so she's holding a baseball bat. And the thing about Hope is like she'll pick it up in the morning and then she'll still be holding it when we put her down for bed that night. It's like the one thing she will hold on to, which is totally fine until those moments where we're trying to actually change her clothes. So we, she's holding on to a baseball bat, we change her diaper, we change her pants, and then we go to change her shirt. We take one arm off, we get the head through the hole, and then we try to pull the shirt off, and it's running up against the baseball bat. And she's holding on to it for dear life. And I look down at my daughter and I try to reason with her like you reason with toddlers. And I go, Hope, I want to change you right now, but in order to change your shirt, in order to change you, you are going to have to let go of this thing so I can change you. And I just wonder if for someone you would recognize that God is looking down at you, and in order for you to change, you're going to have to let go of something. Some of you are exactly like my daughter. You want to change. You want God to do a transforming, powerful work in your life, but you are holding on to something. And the thing you're holding on to is the idea that you can heal on your own, that you've got this on your own. And if you are going to experience the transforming, healing power of God in your life, you have to let go of the idea that you've got this. As a pastor here at this church, I just can't tell you how many times I've seen this principle play out in the lives of people who are hurting. I've walked with people who are going through deep seasons of depression whether it's something inside of them or something external that happened to them, they're going through a season of heaviness. And here's what I need you to know if you are going through a season of heaviness and depression right now. The people who go back away, 
I don't want anyone. I don't need anyone. I can do this on my own. I've got this by myself are almost never the people who find healing and wholeness. In the midst of a season of depression, in the midst of a season of heaviness, it's the people who reach out, who say, I'll talk to a counselor, I'll talk to a therapist, I'll talk to a pastor, I'll talk to a friend. It's the people who say, I can't do this on my own. They let go of the idea that they can do it on their own. And that is the beginning of the path toward healing. The same thing is true for someone who's addicted. Uh, In a room this size, I just don't know how many addictions there are that nobody knows about. Your spouse doesn't know about, your friends don't know about, nobody knows about. But whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or gambling or something else, if you are addicted to something, the instinct of the addict is always to say, back away. I've got this on my own. I don't need help. I can defeat this thing on my own. But it is almost never the case that on your own you heal from addiction. It always happens when you reach out and say, I need help. I can't handle this thing on my own. If you're addicted right now, you must let go of the idea that you can heal on your own. The same goes for someone who's walking through a pain and the ache of being betrayed. Maybe it was your ex, maybe it was your mom or your dad or a business partner or a friend somewhere in your life who wounded you deeply. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians that we are to forgive as Christ forgave us. And yet what happens is we think we have to do that all by ourselves. So we go deeper and deeper into our pain rather than reaching out to someone who can help us heal and forgive and rebuild a beautiful life. What do we need to do if we've been wounded? We need to let go of the idea that you can heal on your own. Why does this principle apply to every single area of life where we're wounded and hurting and stuck? It's because it is a principle that runs all throughout Scripture. It is a sentence that is repeated over and over again in different ways. But here's how it's said in 1 Peter 5.8. It says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that in due season he might lift you up. Here's the principle all throughout the Bible. When you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will raise you up. When you reach out for help, God lifts you up in due season. When you admit you can't do it on your own and you're powerless and you actually need help, that's when God lifts you up out of the pit and puts your feet on solid ground. This is the principle found all throughout scripture. And this is the reason here at Calvary that we say life change happens in relationship. Life change, that breakthrough, that healing power that God wants to do in your life, it happens when you reach out to someone and say, I can't do it on my own. Let me give you a few more examples. It's the lonely individual who shows up at a new small group. It's the person who moved into this area in the last few years. You're not sure you know a lot of people, but you signed up for a small group, and now you actually have to show up into a room full of strangers and try to meet some people. But in that moment of you reaching out to others, that's where God starts to do his work, bringing you out of the pain and the ache of loneliness. It's the addicted person who finally says, I need help. It's the person who's been deep in their addiction for years and finally says, enough. I can't do it on my own. I need to tell someone I need to reach out for help. It's the wayward Christian who re-engages with their church. Perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe that's you listening online right now. Maybe you this morning have been far from God. You've been doing your own thing, but you finally showed back in or tuned back in and it's time to re-engage with faith. And the only way God raises you up is if you humble yourself before him, confessing that to God and reaching out for help that you might re-engage with God's people. Listen, it's the struggling couple who reaches out to a marriage counselor for help. Marriage is difficult. I'm just gonna assume there are folks sitting in this room who have had a rough week with your spouse 
And a rough week is okay, but if a rough week compounds on another rough week and another rough week, and it's been a rough few months or few years, and it's not getting better, it only gets better when you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. When you reach out to a counselor, a therapist, a friend, when you reach out to a pastor and say, I need help in our marriage, that's when healing comes. And finally, the overwhelmed parent who calls a friend for wisdom. I realized after I wrote and after we printed these things that overwhelmed parent is a redundant thing. To be a parent is to be overwhelmed. Um, But yet for parents, so often we think we just have to do this thing on our own. We should just know it all and we should be able to do it. No, no, no. The moment you reach out for help, hey, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to parent a four-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 24-year-old, a 44-year-old. I don't know how to do this. How do I do this? That's when God raises us up because that's the principle in scripture. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and in due season, he'll raise you up. But the opposite is also true. And I need to speak this over you this morning that if humbling yourself is below you, then healing is beyond you. If you decide, I won't ask for help, I got this on my own, back away everyone, I can do this without anyone else's help. If you decide that, you should not anticipate or expect God's healing breakthrough power in your life. Because the principle in life change happens in relationship is that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then he will raise us up. It goes on this way in verse 19. It says, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went to the roof and lowered him through the mat, through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Now, now this is one of the most humorous sections in all of scripture. They're carrying this man on a mat. They go to the front door. They can't get into Jesus. And someone, I don't know which one, has a brilliant idea. What if we go to the roof? We cut a hole in the roof the size of a human, and we lower them through the roof. And like, there's so many questions here the scripture doesn't answer. Like, was the roof ever repaired? Was there insurance on the roof? Who paid for the repair of the roof? Like, there's lots of questions here that are unanswered. And yet it's this beautiful thing of these friends who are like, I will get this person to Jesus no matter what. And again, it doesn't say how many friends there were, but you got to imagine it's at least three, four, five, six friends. They've surrounded him. They're carrying him on a mat up to Jesus through the roof, the whole deal. And this idea of these friends surrounding these people brings up an excellent question for all of us to assess right now. And this is the question, who's surrounding you in this season of life? Who's surrounding you? Now, I think some seasons of life, that's easy to answer. We're like, wow, I have a small group. I have a class. I have a ministry team. I have these friends, these neighbors, this family. Maybe the answer is you're in a great spot. But I suspect for some of you, the answer is actually a little more complicated. I suspect the answer for some of you is actually five years ago, I had a great community around me and everyone was thriving and everything was good. But then some people moved away and some people went elsewhere. And there's others who have just kind of drifted away from the group. And so my, my community has kind of dwindled down. And I'm not surrounded by the kind of people I used to be surrounded by. Maybe you moved here recently and you had great community where you were, but you no longer have great community here. So this is a question we need to wrestle with, not just once in our life, but in every season of our life. As seasons change and as things change in this world, which I don't know if you know, but like the last few years has been like a number of changes in this world. And certainly a number of changes in our church, in our community, in this area, people moving in, people moving out. It's a good question to assess in this season. Who's surrounding you? Who's on your side? Who's carrying the mat with you? Here's four questions to ask about the people surrounding you. Question number one, do they point you to Jesus? Are they they pointing you to Jesus? 
Are they verbally, explicitly talking to you about Jesus? Are they pointing you back to faithfulness to him? There should be men and women in all of our lives who point us to Jesus. As great as it is to have friends who talk football with or or who talk golf with uh, or who talk pop culture or anything else with, as great as it is to have friends we can just kind of have light conversations with, it's also good to have friends who can point you toward Jesus and remind you who the King of Kings is and who the Lord of Lords is. We need that in our life. Number two, do they speak truth? Do they speak truth to you when it's easier to flatter you, when it's easy to just say what you want to hear? Do they speak truth to you even when it's difficult to do so, or even when it would be more convenient to avoid it? Number three, do they speak grace? Are they gracious to you? Do they speak gracious and kind, gospel kind of words into your life? Do they remind you of God's great love for you, or every time you're around them, do they insist that you behave properly in order to earn their affection? And then fourth and probably most important question of all, would they break through someone's roof and lower you through on a mat to get you healed? (laughs) Would they do something potentially illegal if they knew it would help you? I'm not encouraging that whatsoever. Um, But I love this story. I love the story that these guys are just like, whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus, we're going to do, even if it means we have to learn roofing later. Like, that's what they do. I love the way C.S. Lewis says that he said, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it's the chief happiness in life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about where to live, I think I should say sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. It goes on this way in verse 20. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friends, or friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's two really interesting things going on here. Jesus is healing people of all of their diseases. The power of the Lord is with him. They try to get him through the front door. It doesn't work. They go to the roof. They pull off the coup of the century. They lower him down. It's like the moment. In a movie, this would be an excellent moment, right? He's lowered down, and they're like, Jesus is going to heal him of his paralysis. And Jesus looks at him and says, friend, and they're like, here it comes. Your sins are forgiven. And you got to imagine they're like, Oh, and, you know, like, like they're excited, about, uh, you know, kind of like that. And, and, and we're going to get to that because that's actually the central point of this whole story, that Jesus looks at this man and forgives his sins and how central that is to the story. So that's the first thing to notice. But the second thing I want you to notice is this. The second thing I want you to notice is what Jesus says to the individual. And I love this. It, Jesus says your sins are forgiven, but I want you to notice what he thinks. It says, when Jesus saw, not when Jesus saw his faith, It says, when Jesus saw their faith. And one of the most remarkable things about this story is that Jesus heals the paralyzed man not because of his faith, but because of the faith of his friends, because of the faith of the people who surround him, because of the faith of the other people who are surrounding him. This is one of the most remarkable things about the story. And one of the things we have to see this morning that God's healing power, the remarkable ability that God has to show up and do something supernatural to create breakthrough in our life does not always happen because of our faith, but rather because of the faith of the people we have surrounded ourselves with. This is not just a one-off in this story right here. This is something you'll observe as you read through all of the scriptures. I like to put it this way, that God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. This is something you will see all throughout the Bible, that there are all kinds of moments where God could just do something, but instead he asks his people to do something. Like in this story, couldn't God have just spoken from heaven and healed the paralyzed man on his own? Couldn't Jesus have just been like, I need to go that way and go and heal the man? 
But instead, what happens is God uses these individuals carrying him on a mat, breaking into the roof, dropping him down below in order to heal this individual because God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. Now, what we often think is if God's really going to move, he's just going to do it unilaterally from heaven. So if God's really going to speak, it's just me and him alone on a mountaintop and he tells me what to do. If God's really going to move, it's going to be like lightning from heaven or something unexplainable in that way. But that's not what we see all throughout the scripture. All throughout the scripture, if you read through the Bible with this idea that God uses his people to accomplish his purposes, you'll see this to be true. Now you might say, okay, maybe God didn't use these people. Maybe this was just good luck. The guy was laying there, his friends brought him, happened to bring him to Jesus, good for them. Here's what I want you to know. This story has no luck involved. There's no chance involved here. And why do I know that? I know that God actually directed the steps of these men to take their friends to Jesus. And how do I know that? Proverbs 16, verse 9 says these words, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So in other words, these guys thought they had a creative idea to bring this guy before Jesus, and God's like, no, that was my idea in the first place. I led you that way. And sometimes people have objections to this verse. They're asking the question, well, who is God to determine my steps? I get to determine my steps. I'll tell you who God is. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords, and you have no claim against him. You have no complaint against him. That's exactly who he is. And he is going to guide and direct anyone's steps in any time he pleases. And all we get to do is say, thank you, God, for your goodness and for your sovereignty. That's what God does in the story. He guides and directs these people, even to the point of them going on the roof and dropping down their friend before Jesus. God is using his people to accomplish his purposes. That's how this man gets healed. Again, God could have just done it directly from heaven, but he doesn't. Instead, he does this. Here's how I've always interpreted God directing steps and God shaping and moving my life. That God, God brings the right people into my life and the right seasons into our lives to accomplish his purposes. God brings the right people at the right time in our lives to accomplish his purposes. This is true in your life. If you look back across the course and timeline of your life, you will see that God brought the right people into your life to accomplish his purposes in the right season and in the right time. Let me put it to you this way. Um, so my wife, Danny, and I are convinced um, that God's call on our lives for the rest of our lives is to serve and love and minister to Calvary Community Church. We believe that this is God's call on our life to be here. But, but here's what I need you to know. I, I didn't grow up at Calvary. And so I was on a child here at Calvary, and I was like, I guess I'll stay here forever. In fact, I didn't grow up anywhere near here. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. But I loved the Lord, and even as a teenager, but I need you to know the call to Calvary did not happen by me, like as a 17-year-old, going up on a mountain and going, God, I want to serve you. What's your call for my life? And God says, Brian, go ye to Westlake Village. I said, okay, Lord, and what do I look for? He goes, look for the giant concrete church, and that shall be your call. Like, that is not how this happened at all. Like, the call of God on my life to come to Calvary Community Church wasn't me alone on a mountain listening to God and him telling me where to go. Here's how it happened. 17 years ago, I'm a freshman at Loyola Marymount University. I show up at the school. I'm trying to get to know people. And a friend of a friend of a friend invites me to come to this, like, late-night hangout where it's like a Q&A about God. And it's meant to be this evangelistic environment where we try to figure out what we believe about God. And so the idea was have a bunch of Christians there, invite some people who aren't Christians, and have some conversations about Jesus. And so I didn't really have any friends, so I just figured that's the place to go, and so I show up to this place. And as I show up to that place, one of the first times I went, I met a young man 
who did not go to Calvary, or did not, did not go to Loyola Marymount University, but grew up here at Calvary Community Church. His name was Drew Walton. And so me and Drew Walton meet that night at this event. And here's the funny thing about us meeting. Um, it was an event for non-Christians. So I didn't know if he was a Christian and he didn't know if I was a Christian. But we did the thing that young men in 2006 did. If you were in college in 2006, the thing you did when you met one another, brand new person, is you became friends on Facebook. That's what you did. This was the peak of Facebook being a cool college thing to do. It is no longer that, but that's what it was in the time. So we become friends on Facebook, and our relationship is basically about that for a year. We don't really know each other. We're not really talking a whole lot. There's not like a lot of depth to the, the, the friend. We just see each other occasionally. That's kind of it. And then in the summer of 2007, Drew Walton is working with our high school ministry here at Calvary, and he wants to lead a small group. He needs a co-leader for the small group. He seeks the Lord, goes, who should I ask? And the Lord puts my name on his heart. And his first response to the Lord was, I don't know if Brian Howard is a Christian. <laughs> but I'll go ahead and ask. And so he asks me, and sure enough, I agree. And so in fall 2007, we start leading a small group here. And then eventually I come on staff and start to sense God's call in my life. And all of that happens. Now listen, that is an incredibly convoluted story of how God brought me here, right? That is not as simple as I was 17 and God said, go to Calvary and Westlake. No, what happened in this story? God brought the right people at the right time in my life to accomplish his purposes. And that's exactly what God does in your life too. He has brought the right people at the right time to accomplish his purposes. Right now in this season, he is bringing the right people at the right time to accomplish his next purpose for your life. That's what God is constantly doing. He is weaving and bringing people in and out of our lives. And the only question for you is this. It's not, will God bring the right people at the right time? Of course he will. The question for you is this. Are you resisting or receiving the people God is bringing into your life right now? Because for some of us, what happens is we kind of become adults and we're like, okay, I'm good. My, I've, I've met enough people. I'm done. But what we must do is we must say, hey, God is bringing people into my life. And perhaps, perhaps God is bringing this person into my life for the next assignment he has for me, the next call on my life, the next thing he wants to do, the next healing work. At some point, you got this paralyzed man. And we don't know the backstory, but at some point he becomes friends with these individuals because God brings the right people into our life at the right time to accomplish his purposes. It happened for this paralyzed man. It happened for me. It happens for you all the time, even if you don't have the eyes to see it. Verse 21 says this. Since the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, the Pharisees aren't wicked people. They know the law. They know the scriptures. They know that God gets to forgive sins, but they're distracted people because they don't realize that God, the Son, Jesus, is standing right in front of them. And then in verse 22, it says, God knew what they were thinking, or Jesus knew what they were thinking, and said, why are you thinking these things in your heart? which is this total power move of Jesus. He knows exactly what the Pharisees are thinking. And I might just add this morning, he knows exactly what you are thinking right now. Totally different sermon, different time. All right, move along. Verse 23, which is easier, Jesus says, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. So Jesus asked a pretty simple question. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And the answer is easy. Easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, if you say your sins are forgiven and nothing happens, everyone kind of expects that. If you say get up and walk and nothing happens, very awkward moment, right? Not a great moment. And Jesus says, what does he say? I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Like in other words, I can do both. 
Therefore, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus heals this man. But you need to see in the context of the story, he does not simply heal this man because he thinks it's the right thing to do and that would help the man out and that would be nice. He heals this man for a point. He's making a point. So you've got the forgiveness of sins and you've got the healing of disease. And sometimes we want Jesus, come on, just heal the disease, the sin thing we can deal with later. And Jesus goes, no, no, I'm going to heal the disease because I need you to understand how important the sin thing is. So here's the problem for the man. If Jesus, forgi- if Jesus heals his disease but doesn't forgive his sins, he'll walk around healthier, but he's still got a deeper problem going on. And the same thing is true for you and for me. If Jesus came into this room in his resurrected body right now and healed all of the diseases and infirmities and issues going on in our bodies, but did not deal with the sin issue, all of us are doomed. Why? Because the deepest problem in our life is not the disease, the infirmity, the issues we're facing. The deepest problem in our life is our sin before a holy God that has fractured our relationship with God and kept us from his presence and his fellowship. See, here's what we need to understand when we say that life change begins with relationship. Life change happens in relationship. The life change begins with a right relationship with God. Life change begins like that transformative breakthrough power begins with a right relationship with with God. Like I'll put it this way. Have you ever been in a relationship where you're not sure whether you and the other person are good? Let me rephrase. Have you ever been married? Um, (laughs) Where you're like, wait, are we good? Did I say something that offended? No. Did I, did you, uh, am I mad at you? Are you mad at me? Are we mad at each other? Are we not mad at each other? Like this is constant. Or have you ever had like a grown kid to have a grown child and you called them on the phone and you said something, but then they hung up and you weren't sure if they hung up because they needed to go or they were mad or both or what, and you're just confused. Maybe in business or in relationships or anywhere you are, there's always these moments where we're not sure if we are on good terms with the other person. And you know what that creates in you? It creates the same thing in me. It creates stress. We're overwhelmed. We're anxious. We feel like, are they good? Are we good? There's just kind of this stress that happens in the midst of it. And here's what happens to far too many Christians. They ask this question, okay, how do I get in a right relationship with God? I want my relationship with him to be right. I know I have a relationship with him, but is it a right relationship? Are me and God good? Are we on good terms? And here's the problem. The problem is that most of us, if we're asking, are we and God on good terms, we look to our emotion, how we feel about God. We're like, well, I feel close to God, so me and God must be good. Or I feel far from God, so I don't think we're good. Or we look at our behavior. We look at our behavior and we think to ourselves, well, I've been behaving myself this week. I've read my Bible. I've prayed. I showed up at church on Sunday. I showed up at church on Wednesday. I showed up just another time because I forgot something, but it still counts, right? Like I showed up and we look at our behavior. But here's the problem. If you want to know if you have a right relationship with God, do not look down to your emotion and your behavior because your emotion and your behavior are fickle. They change all the time. They're constantly up and down. You ever woken up out of bed and just you're not sure you like anyone, including yourself? Like, you ever woken up out of bed and just kind of been grumpy? Like, your emotion is all over the place. Your behavior is all over the place. If you think the right relationship between you and God is based on your emotion and your behavior, you will be stressed out for the rest of your life. If you want to know if you have a right relationship with God, do not look down to your emotion and behavior. If you want to know if you have a right relationship with God, look back to Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the gospel. 
The gospel invites us to know we are on good terms with God, not because of anything inside of us, but because of something that happened objectively outside of us on the cross and in the resurrection 2,000 years ago as Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead for our salvation. This is is why I love Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We'll put it on the screen. It says these words. It says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I love this word, this, like God demonstrates his love for us in this. And what is the this? It's not an emotion you feel. It's not a behavior you have. It's not that God loves you because of this, this something you've done. God loves you. Your assurance that you're on good terms with God is that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you did anything to earn God's love and affection, God sent Jesus to make a right relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's the invitation for you. Life change begins in relationship, and it begins in relationship with God, where you have a right relationship with him. And I would plead and urge all of you to be in that right relationship with God today, to call upon his name, not based on your emotion or your behavior, but based on God's great love for you shown in Jesus. Verse 25 says this. It says, immediately he stood up in front of them, and took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. This is a beautiful picture. He's laying there, he's paralyzed, he has nothing, no ability to heal himself. And Jesus heals him, not because of his own faith, but because of the faith of his friends. And he gets up and he's celebrating, and this is such a wonderful thing, but he's actually contributed nothing to this. And this is the perfect picture of how God heals us and how God shows his supernatural power through the power of relationships. That God is gonna show his healing here not based on this man's faith or his action or his behavior, but based on the faith of his friends. So this whole morning, we've been talking about how we experience God's healing and his power and his breakthrough in our life. And I want to suggest to you this morning that we think breakthrough often begins with action when really breakthrough begins with relationship. Life change doesn't begin with action. We think it's give me four things to do. Give me a punch list. Give me a book to read. Give me a task to do. And all of those things are going to play out in our life. But if you want life change in some area of your life that you're struggling in, that you're stuck in, it doesn't begin with action steps. It begins with relationship. Relationship with God's people. See, we want it to be action steps. We want it to be a checklist. We want it to be four things to do. And God says, get in the right relationships. Verse 26 says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. They saw remarkable things in their day. And you know what's beautiful about being a follower of that same Jesus who healed this man 2,000 years ago? We can see remarkable things in our day. Like that's the question I want to close with today. Do you want to see God do remarkable things in your life? And actually the tragedy is that for a lot of Christians years ago, you kind of gave up on that question. It just kind of became like you're just trying to coast through. You're just trying to live life. You've kind of given up on the idea that God could do a new, powerful, amazing thing in your life. And you've just kind of gotten in your rut and your stasis and you're just kind of moving through. But if your answer to this question is yes, I want to see God do remarkable things in my life. I want to see him do remarkable things in my family. I want to see him do remarkable things in my community, in my church, in my nation, in this world. I want to see God do remarkable things in and through my life. Then how do we see that happen? And the answer according to this story is simple. Then you surround yourself with the right people. With the right people. You surround yourself with God's people. Why? Because life change happens in relationship. 
Life change happens in relationship. This morning, as you came in, you were handed one of these um, flyers that you'll see up on here, and it's just a little brochure, and it says life change happens in relationship on it. And on the inside, what you'll see is 12 different ways to connect here at Calvary. You might ask me, why didn't you choose 10 or 15? Because 12 fit really well on the paper, okay? That's why we went with 12. You open that up and you go, okay, if life change happens in relationship, there's options here. There's options if you need care and counseling or addiction recovery. If you're a man, a woman, a young adult, a seasoned adult, there's all sorts of things. You might say to me, Brian, I already tried and it didn't work out. Awesome. Scratch it off the list. You still got 11 to go. Okay. Why do I say this? Because this is not a small matter. This is where life change happens. It happens in relationship. And even if you've tried and failed and it hasn't worked out and you try again, it is worth continuing to do. Why? Because that's where God shows his supernatural power. I want to encourage you to look at that, to consider it. Maybe you haven't leaned in with a ministry. Maybe you haven't been a part of it. Maybe pre-pandemic, five years ago, you had a great community of people. But that's fallen apart. Now it's time to step into a new community of people. Because in this season of your life, God wants to change your life. And he wants to do it through relationship. He wants to do it through his people surrounding you. So there's two groups of people in this room that are going to be looking at this brochure. And the first would be the people who are already in great relationships. Listen, if you're surrounded by great relationships, invite others in. Like one of the temptations in church life is, is like, yes, I have my friends and we have our community, we have our group and no one shall ever penetrate it because it is the greatest thing that has ever happened. And that is not the path to thriving. If you feel like, man, this sermon's great and I affirm it, but I don't need this brochure because I have great relationships here. Don't toss the brochure, invite others into it, okay? But, but then if you are struggling to find great relationships, I want to encourage you to take a step of faith. And that step of faith might mean signing up for a class. It might mean reaching out to someone. It might mean sending an email, making a phone call this week. It might mean you stepping into an uncomfortable and a different environment. Why? Because life change happens in relationship. That's the invitation for you, to step into something new and to watch what God does as you surround yourself with the right people. Because here's what we've seen throughout the whole sermon. When we show humility, God shows his healing. When we humble ourselves, that's where God is going to start to bring healing into our life. And when we chose weakness, that's where God shows his strength. So here's the invitation for everyone here this morning. The invitation is to remember that life change happens into relationship and to understand that as we step into that, God's going to show his power, his presence, his healing in our life. That if we would lay down that pride that says, I've got this, I can do this on my own. I don't need anyone. I don't need people up in my business. I don't need people in my life. That if we would let go of that pride, God would do something powerful. Final question I want to ask you this morning is simply this. Are you willing to trade your pride for God's power in your life? Why? Because life change happens in relationship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for life and breath. Thank you for the relationships that change lives. Thank you for the story of this paralyzed man, the witness he is to it. I look forward uh, to meeting him someday in glory, knowing that his sins are forgiven just like mine are, uh, and that I will be with you for, forevermore. Uh, and so God, thank you for his story. Thank you for the relationships in his life. And thank you for the relationships that are available right here at Calvary. I pray for those who feel lonely, disconnected, far away from others and far away from you. God, that they would take steps of bold faith into relationships right here at Calvary. And so God, transform us, change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we want your power, your presence in our life and we want it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen.